I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's more of a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, maybe with a little background on the actors, the director, and hopefully, if I'm doing my job, a half-amusing story or two for you. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings, and there will be spoilers. So, if you want to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I'd hope that you do, please recommend us to a friend and give us a favorable review. As we close out this month's theme, the completely non-judgmental You Suck, it's our covering of a batch of films all featuring some sort of cinematic treatment of Nosferatu otherwise known as vampires. So why don't we just wrap this up with the 1987 Western horror film, Near Dark. Join us! You ever notice that sometimes you pick up on something new? Like you learn a new word or you hear a new song, maybe you see a new old film, and suddenly you hear or see it everywhere when you are out and about in your daily life. You start to think that there's some crazy conspiracy afoot. Like, how could this be? Again, I'm talking small here. Like, you know, you, you make it to 20 years and you've never heard the Donny Iris song, Leah, and then one day you hear it and it's on the radio and the next day you hear it playing from a passing car. good jam. Also, I am oh so white. So, could it be that you've just had the world's worst timing and you've never properly experienced that song? Well, I mean, statistically, yeah, that's possible. But most likely, you would be experiencing what professionals refer to as the frequency illusion. Or, it's an even fancier way of putting it, it, it's the Batter-Mainhoff phenomenon. Do you get that? Batter Mainhoff. You see, it's a cognitive bias that makes everyone believe that what they're seeing, hearing, experiencing is happening repeatedly as if it was everywhere, when in reality it's always been around. It's just now their mind is actually aware of it. Your brain is very unique, just like everyone else's. When it learns something new, it gets subconsciously excited. And you quietly have, at least for a brief window of time, 
selective attention regarding that one new thing you just learned, heard, experienced. And your mind begins to unconsciously look for that thing without you actively thinking about it. The result, if you experience that thing again, that person, that film, that song, you reinforce a confirmation bias in your subconscious, which means you start agreeing with yourself that, yep, this thing I just learned is apparently everywhere, and now I'm officially seeing more of it. But you're not. You're now just acknowledging something that was going on, whether or not you were initially aware of it. So many years not spent rocking out to Donnie Iris. <sighs> Okay, so I hear you out there. Chris, why are you busting off some armchair psychology and making us listen to your outdated rock? Well, I gotta tell you, when I first saw this movie when I was in high school, I didn't know what I was getting into. Because once I saw it, it seemed like Near Dark was everywhere. After renting it and thoroughly enjoying it, I then saw it on an NCAP display for a hot VHS deals at a local Best Buy. I then encountered it again in a classics bin at the Suncoast video at the mall, and up until a week prior, I had never even known it had existed. What the hell? What's even more important, my confusion aside, in the fall of 1987, Near Dark was one of two vampire films to come out within two months of each other, most likely giving the public a false sense that teen vampires were all over everywhere. The first film, the Lost Boys, which is a solid choice, but in this case, it's the lesser film when compared to Near Dark. It's a normal popcorn movie, had Brat Pack vampire members duking it out with the two Corys. Not bad, yeah, a future episode for this show, but keep yourself in check. Because when compared to this week's feature, a brooding, ominous, dark, adult, unglamorous portrayal of vampires and about life out on the fringe, there's going to be no contest. So, I suppose you'd like to know some background. Well, this was the second feature film to come from writer-director Catherine Bigelow. You may know her from such rarely seen films as Point Break in 91, The Hurt Locker in 2008, Zero Dark Thirty in 2012. So clearly, she didn't go on to do anything. So at the time, she teamed up with screenwriter Eric Red to pen a genre-bending horror story vampires traveling through rural areas of the southwest and if you can excuse this pun i would call it hillbilly horror now to be fair this is not the first time that the merging of horror particularly vampires setting in the old west had occurred on screen a particular low point in this subgenre could be the 1966 billy the kid versus dracula but this is a little different. This is more of a melange of Western settings meets biker aesthetic, all tied together with the banal existence of vampires roaming the back roads of Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, feeding as they go on the local populace. With that setup, what could be better? Well, you have a talented up-and-coming director who's just paired with an up-and-coming writer. See, Red was just hot off of The Hitcher, which is another future title, and a stellar, disturbing thriller. So that just leaves you with who you're going to cast. So this happened before they were dating, before they were married, 
and before they were subsequently divorced, but Bigelow was hanging out at the time with James Cameron, who was just putting the finishing touches on a little film called Aliens, and she was liking what she saw in that cast. Cameron, being Cameron and I, I guess at least semi-nice guy, told her, go ahead, start talking to my cast members, I'm almost finished with this film. So before Aliens had finished its post-production, Lance Hendrickson, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein were all hired to be members of this traveling, blood-sucking troupe. You throw in a little Adrian Pazdar, who would be playing the film's lead, and he was just hot off of Solar Babies, and then Jenny Wright stepping in as his vampiric love interest, fresh from her film St. Elmo's Fire. Throw in veteran character actor Tim Thomerson, who comes on board to play um, Adrian's father, that is, and rounding things out was Joshua John Miller, who is one of those kid character actors who used scene in everything. He was all over the 80s. He's in Halloween 3, River's Edge, Class of 99, Teen Witch, and he really specializes in playing those annoying, angry, younger brother roles. Truly, you have great casting here. What's that? You want some more? Well, how about I throw one more amazing piece at you. It's a soundtrack that was done by Tangerine Dream, providing you with this unsettling aural landscape fitting to convey the horror of being kidnapped by a family of vampires roaming through the open spaces. Alright, you've heard enough of my idle prattle now, so how about we give you the trailer?
A young Kansas teen, Caleb Colton, is played by Adrian Pazdar, lives on a farm with his father, Loy Colton, is played by Tim Thomerson, and his kid sister, Sarah, played by Marcy Leeds. Caleb goes out with his friends for a night on the town, which includes pretty much aimlessly driving around, drinking a few beers, and looking for girls to talk to. He happens to catch the eye of a young gal named May, played by Jenny Wright, and the two spend the entire night talking, making out a little bit, generally enjoying each other's company. Caleb tries to introduce May to his horse, but her presence spooks the animal. May realizes that they've been out all night and that dawn is breaking, and begins to panic, which confuses Caleb. He offers to drive her home, but she refuses when he doesn't seem to move fast enough for her liking. She ends up quickly kissing him, and then biting him. She then runs off, leaving a befuddled Caleb, but he now seems to have bigger problems to worry about. As he's heading home, he starts to feel very ill. He stumbles from his car and finds that his skin is smoking and burning in the light of the rising sun. As he stumbles and makes his way across the fields to get to his father and sister who are working in the front yard, an RV speeds across the open field and intercepts him, and he's grabbed and dragged inside in front of his family. The RV speeds off while his father and sister scream his name, running after him to no avail. Caleb is then brought face to face with Severin, as played by Bill Paxton, who throws him down and holds a sharpened spurred boot to the youth's neck, intent on killing him. Others in the shadow of the RV shout out for him to do it and be done with it, but May throws herself across Caleb, protecting him. Separate your head from your shoulders. Hope you don't mind none. You put a hurting on us, May, but good. It was sort of an accident. No, that was sloppy, May. Real sloppy. Let me do it, Jesse. Let me tap dance on it, won't you? It'll be so good. Do it. Fast. All right. The times roll. Woo! No! What is going on? Hey, what's going on, son? It's what's coming off. Your face clean off. You might as well just kill me then, too. How you figure that? Because he's been bit. But he ain't been led. Oh, shit! He's turned by now. Son of a bitch, Jess. He's turned. He comes with us. Caleb passes out, and when he regains consciousness, he can clearly now see who's all around him. He's introduced to Jesse, who's played by Lance Hendrickson, the leader of the group, and a former Confederate soldier. Jesse explains to him that he's May's mistake. She was supposed to have bled him and completely finished her own transformation. She herself has not been with the group very long. May can carry him for a bit, and after that, if he doesn't hold up his end of the things fully get on board with living the lifestyle and supporting his new family, which includes the aforementioned 1950s rockabilly Severin, the Depression-era tough gal Diamondback, and last but not least, Homer, a rage-filled kid somewhere between the late 60s cursed to be stuck in the body of a 10-year-old forever. The adults are at least willing to give Caleb the benefit of the doubt, but Homer is openly hostile to him. As he's jealous, May was supposed to be for him, but he's angry and hurt that she wants nothing to do with him and wants to only tend to Caleb. 
Caleb does make an attempt to flee, finding himself in a bus station in Oklahoma, looking ill and strung out, with locals thinking he's on some kind of drugs, unaware he's really fighting his cravings for human blood. A hard-nosed cop ends up lending him a few bucks, at least enough to get a bus ticket back home, which he purchases but does not end up riding. He ends up seeking out May, still unwilling to kill, but willing at least at the moment to let her kill for the both of them and allow Caleb to feed off of her as a willing sacrifice. The group is unaware that Caleb is not on board with killing, so this precarious agreement between he and May has to be kept secret. The family stop off at a roadside bar where Severin tries to show Caleb the ropes, hoping he will fully embrace the lifestyle. This includes allowing Caleb to get beat up by a local in an effort to illustrate that they can't really be hurt the same way a human can. Also, allowing Caleb to realize he is now unnaturally strong. With the menacing backing of Jesse and Diamondback, Severn kills several bar patrons while John Parr's naughty naughty blares over the jukebox. Which is interesting, because Jesse then bleeds the waitress and Homer kills a local redneck. Only one bar patron ends up being spared, and he runs off in the night, mainly due to Caleb not wanting to kill him. After feasting on patrons, the family then lights the place on fire and takes their leave, a stunned Caleb along for the ride. They rent a motel room and go through their usual drill of blacking out the windows, taping shut curtains in order to keep the light of day from reaching them. Their slumber is interrupted, however, when authorities track them back from the scene of the bar with the help from the one witness that Caleb let go. In the light of day, a precarious shootout takes place, with Diamondback and Homer panicking that they will burn in the light. Caleb volunteers to secure a vehicle and bravely runs out into the light covered by just a blanket, returning to rescue the family and allow them all to make a getaway from the authorities in a van, endearing himself to them. What should be a triumph is quickly turned into a nightmare when they arrive to a new hotel to bunk down for that evening and Caleb finds that his father and sister are staying there, having tracked him from the police officer calling in that he had loaned Caleb money for the bus ticket. Caleb is horrified that Homer is setting his sights on Sarah, wanting to turn her into a longtime companion for himself, someone who can't age as well. Caleb intervenes, arguing they will not turn his sister, which is just enough time for an armed loy to basically interrupt the party and level a gun at the group. No. But you're going. No! No! She's mine. You're gonna have to give her back, son. She's not yours. I'm gonna nip her. I can't do that. I turned me. She went off and turned you. Now I'm turning your little sister. Makes us even, Stephen. You let her 
So Loy does fire on Jesse, who calmly spits the bullet out and snatches the gun away from Loy, breaking some of his fingers. Sarah manages to get out of Homer's grasp and runs to the door, exposing the entire room to sunlight. Casting a fleeting glance back at May, Caleb runs after his real family, burning himself in the process but escaping in their truck nonetheless. Back home, Loy is trying to care for Caleb, and son just asks the father, could he simply give him a blood transfusion? And surprisingly, it works. Caleb is brought back to being a full human being. Reunited, the family happily enjoys a meal together. That night, May shows up to the Colton farm to talk to Caleb, trying to convince him to come back, something that only she really wants. For the group of vampires, this is a much-needed distraction for them to abduct Sarah in the night. Caleb tries to give chase, but discovers that his and his father's trucks have had their tires slashed, so he hops on his horse and gives pursuit to the group, only to be thrown when the animal is spooked by none other than Severin. Caleb tries to get into a passing truck cab, begging the driver for help, but the trucker thinks the kid is crazy and just tries to pitch him from the cab. Severin takes this all in and calmly shoots the driver, killing him instantly. Caleb then climbs into the 18-wheeler and uses it to run Severin over, whooping with excitement when he feels he's accomplished this, until he sees the vampire climbing up the hood. Severin punches through the hood and into the engine, ripping out a bunch of wiring. Caleb then aims the truck towards a gas station and purposely jackknifes the vehicle while he jumps to safety as the careening machine and its vampire hood ornament ignite in a violent explosion. Caleb continues his pursuit for his sister. He still continues to chase after the family, who has now taken refuge, sort of, in an unsunproofed station wagon. As dawn starts to break, all members of the vampire family are beginning to be burned by the rays and try to protect themselves under blankets in the car. May, seeing Caleb chasing after the car, knows this is her opportunity and grabs Sarah away from Homer and breaks through the back of the station wagon. Running, smoking and burning in the sun, pulling Sarah along with her, she keeps running until she can meet up with Caleb, who shelters her under his jacket. Homer, raging, jumps from the station wagon as well and tries to make a final attempt to catch up to Sarah, but as he sprints, he begins to catch fire and burn, eventually dying in a full-on explosion. Diamondback grieves for Homer, and Jesse, in anger, makes a final attempt to run the group down, but misses his chance. The damage that they're receiving in the car is too great, and Jesse and Diamondback hold each other as they burn, 
the collective fire of their bodies causing the car to explode. May awakens from the whole ordeal back on the Colton farm, but she's been given a transfusion and is now fully human. We close out on May and Caleb enjoying a much-needed, teeth-free embrace. There is just so much to unpack here. There is so much to applaud in this movie. One of my favorite things about this film is the level of detail you can see that they took with the characters. Jesse Hooker's Duster, for example. Aside from just being this cool-looking western coat, you, you watch carefully. When he takes it on and off, the coat itself is made out of the Stars and Bars Confederate flag, which, no, I'm not making America great again here. I'm saying it's a nice touch since he himself fought during the Civil War as a Southern Confederate soldier. It gives him this whole backstory, just really gives over to the fact that he's been around for a long time. Hendrickson himself, once again, throws himself into the role. Um, here, this is a clip he did just being interviewed on what he did to prepare only his hands to look more vampiric for the role. Lance would go out and spend several thousands of dollars on all kinds of maybe props and different things. And he's, he's just, he just, he's such a chameleon and he just, to just change himself. I wanted my hands to look a certain way, so I, I, I got uh, acrylic nails put on and broke them off with a pair of pliers, so I looked like bones coming out the tips of my fingers. And he had these, these, these nails that were just jagged and horrible nails. I said, what the hell have you done? And he said, well, I, I got some guy in Beverly Hills to glue on these, these kind of nail extensions, but these were like really thick and really gnarly. And then he said, then I went home and I broke them. I took a pair of pliers and I kind of broke them all off. And his hands kind of hung, and they had that great kind of extension, kind of reminiscent of the original, you know, Max Schreck, his Nosferatu. I went down to about 140 pounds on purpose, so I wanted to be able to see the bones on my chest. When you don't eat for, you know, and get real skinny, you lose your muscle tone. And so I was reaching for a step, and my back went out. But <laughs> I went, oh, man, I better eat some food here. Then it's decided... We'll give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. Jeanette Goldstein's portrayal of Diamondback is equally fabulous. She was picked up and turned by Jesse sometime during the Dust Bowl slash Great Depression of the 1930s. Her blonde hair with its dark roots gives the authentic oaky feel and places her solidly in that time frame. She's clearly grown to love Jesse, and they're kind of like this weird married couple who just happen to travel around and feed on people together. Her maternal care of Homer is interesting to me, both because she herself is so willing to pull out a straight razor and join in on the mayhem, where at the same time she'll then turn and tell Homer that he needs to wash up and give him the motherly comfort that he seems to seek. I, I will say, I do kind of have a problem with Joshua John Miller, and that is this. He's not a bad actor. I, I do not wish to convey that. He does an excellent job. He seems to be playing this part as good as anyone else, and as good as anything he made during that decade. 
More like he is still playing Homer as an annoying 13 year old, which in reality the character is supposed to now be a man somewhere in his mid 20s to mid 30s, take your pick on which decade you think Homer was turned. And while yes, men can still be immature, with all the lusting and anger Homer's supposed to be exuding, Miller still plays him as a bratty kid. So I suppose the argument could be made that Diamondback's mothering has caused him to remain stuck with the mentality of an adolescent, but I personally don't buy that argument. I think this is more of a choice made by Bigelow, perhaps to make the concept of 13-year-old, who's really a 30-year-old, who lusts after an 18-year-old girl and then later transfixes his lust onto an 11-year-old girl, a little more palatable for the film. That being said, kid's still great in it. To balance all of this out, I would be completely remiss if I didn't give proper respect to the late, great Bill Paxton. His portrayal of a southern fried psychopath that is Severin is stellar. Everything is turned up to an 11 when we see him on the screen, whether he's making threats, trying to intimidate people, or what I like is when he's trying to put on the charm, getting ready to make a meal out of two beautiful girls. It's a great transformation his biker clothes off, his hair combed back. He's trying to pass some sort of old-fashioned southern charm, a gent, if you will, but there's always a hint of devilry in his eyes. And it's all made by a raucous portrayal that Paxton gives us. This film was positively reviewed by critics. It didn't fare well at the box office. It was shot for $5 million, but only managed to recoup about $3.4 million. Like most things that I enjoy and like, this film really hit its stride over the years by way of video rental. Time has been exceedingly kind to Near Dark, and it is now a frequent film that will show up on best of horror lists and critic recommendations, as it should. I'm very happy to say this film was scheduled to be remade in the early aughts and then was mercifully cancelled, partly due to the fact that Twilight was being made. Twilight itself contains a human vampire romance and once again, studios banking on the fact that people are stupid. To be fair, people are. They felt folks would not be able to, you know, dis discern between the two and that they would think this was a bad ripoff of the Twilight franchise when, in fact, Near Dark was something that had already existed and was being rebooted. Ugh. To this I say, good. You remake bad films that didn't get it right. This film gets it right. It doesn't need to be remade. And I think John Parr would agree with us, and he would be able to say it best.
version of Near Dark that we screened here at the LSCE was the 2009 Lionsgate Blu-ray release, which has surprisingly since gone out of print. I was shocked to discover this. This version I have seen being sold in private Z shops on Amazon, attempting to sell this film for the low price starting of $95 and going up from there, which I do feel this is a good film and I think it's more than worth your time to try to find it. I'm thinking this is some weird way to drive up desire and scarcity because they're trying to get a new pressing done. This belief holds because you also can't find a download of this film available through Amazon Prime either. You could still get a copy of it used on DVD or from a private seller by way of eBay, and those seem to average out to being about $14 a throw, which is far more reasonable and you could do worse for that sort of money. Please remember folks, I'm not trying to tell people that they need to go out and purchase things because I get something for it. Just feel that it's important that you keep supporting physical media and to continue to have these companies release content that we love and enjoy. Besides, this movie is a blast and I think it's important that more people see it. It's a good vampire, western, biker, weird movie. And that's our stock and trade here. And that's what we love. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. This closes out our month of vampire films, and it sets us up for a new monthly theme coming in November, I Feel Good. I know I said it last time, but it's true. We have been having slow but steady growth out there, folks, and it's all because of you. So I would ask, please, you are so awesome. If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page at the Linden Street Cinema Experience. Recommend us to friends. We're on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple Podcast user, please, we would greatly appreciate a five-star and a review from you. We're also pleasantly pleased to announce we are being featured on Podchaser.com. That's a podcast database for creators and listeners of podcasts. Check it out. Give us a like there. Review us if you please. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to even get more personal or would like to have a segment on the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor, a free and easy app to use. So until next time, everybody please take care and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, everybody. 